Welcome to the first episode of Ventricles, a podcast of the science, religion, and culture program at Harvard Divinity School. My name is Shireen Hamza, and this episode is part of a series about time, timekeeping, and the body. In this episode, we will be exploring the history of clocks, calendars, and other technologies. Uh, we think of the the sort of tick-tock of the uh, clock as, as such a force of reason. You were just listening to Projit Mukherjee, a professor in the history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania. I asked him about his favorite clock story. So we're going to start the episode with a story about a clock that nobody wanted to use. Well, I guess the most uh, most interesting pocket watch stories for me, because I've always loved ghost stories, are stories about haunted watches. There's also one I've heard, which is not exactly a pocket watch story, but more of a uh, grandfather's clock story, which every time it stopped, this was in a, obviously grandfather clocks were in grand homes with like really big elite families, but every time it stopped, uh, somebody died in the family or something really bad happened in the family. So they were they got to a point where nobody wanted to turn the... Because, as you'll probably know, these old watches, they needed to be wound up to run. And nobody wanted to wind it up and start it again because it might stop at some point. But whenever it was wound up, it would run apparently perfectly for years and then suddenly it would stop and whenever it stopped within a week, something really bad would happen. Projit has found many stories like this one in English and Bengali literature. But he's also been told anecdotes like this by people he knows. I asked him why he thinks this story is interesting, and this is what he said. Ever since Descartes, uh, everybody in the Western world, and I think now even uh, outside the Western world, a lot of people use the clock as the basic metaphor for a mechanistic understanding of nature. You would say your body works like a clock. You would say uh, the, the, the climate works like a clock, the intricacies of the mechanism. The clock and the watch have become the metaphors of choice through which we see the world in a mechanistic way. And when you have that very object being haunted, run by all kinds of unreasonable, irrational forces, it kind of complicates our view of this mechanized metaphor for the nature, your body, whatever. When did it become normal for people to compare what they found in the world to machines, like clocks? Projit said, after a certain point, we start thinking of a healthy body as working like a clock. Strangely, this is the inverse of what another historian said when I asked her about the very first timekeeping device. She said the body is a clock, the very first one humans had. We got hungry, we got sleepy, we noticed day and night followed each other, Um, we had animals to tend to, or there were seasons for certain chores, and I think the first sense of time is very much um, one of us in a natural state or a small um, community in which we are gauging our our human needs and our urges and that help to define when we do things and what's appropriate. You've been listening to Dr. Sarah Schechner, curator of the Harvard Collection of Historical Scientific Instruments. And then 
individuals start to notice in the ancient world shadows and see how they change during the course of the day. We also have references to the sounds of birds and animals, so the famous cock crowing in the morning. So there is, one hand, this very natural way to think about time. But what happens is that we get a sense not just of time consciousness, but time discipline, where there are things we want to do or community decides is important to be done at a specific time. This idea of time discipline that she's talking about was popularized by E.P. Thompson, a British historian who studied the making of the working class. He wrote about a huge shift in people's relationship with time in 19th century England when they had to abide by a fixed work schedule based on mechanical clocks. But Sarah is describing something very similar happening in the ancient and medieval world. So we have the first time sundials start to be um, really not just something in a religious setting for a priest to say, okay, here's the start of the week, uh, here's the plan for the flooding of the Nile, and so on. The first time we see them in a more popular setting is around the third or fourth century BCE in Greece. And it's not really clear what precedes them. There's very little evidence. Um, and they start to appear in um, uh, marketplaces and in temples and even in theaters. And you also start to get over time, people complaining about s these sundials and saying, wow, I'm hungry, I want to eat now, but the sundial says it's not time, so I have to wait or I have to bend the sundial around so that it shows the time early. And so you get these comic writers talking about the annoying sundials who are interfering with their daily habits. It sounds like the sundials installed in the marketplaces and theaters of ancient Greek cities were as irritating to people as alarm clocks are now. There was also simultaneously with these sundials, the ancient Egyptians had water clocks, and mm -hmm. so did the Greeks. Mm -hmm. And these would measure time through the outflow of water from a vessel. These older sundials and water clocks get taken up into the medieval world. Mechanical clock seems to originate in somewhere in Italy, uh, in the European setting at least, um, in a monastery setting um, in order to, um, uh, something of an alarm clock to get the monks up in time to, to say certain prayers. So we have this time discipline that carries over from the ancient world and it's picked up in the monastic setting in the Benedictine rule, which says at certain times of the day you need to pray. And, you know, it's very similar to Judaic culture and Muslim culture where you have these certain prayer times and you have to, the, the idea is that the prayer is best or more potent and more effective if you say it at the right time and often with others. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're in a place where your water clock it's going to freeze over, <laughs> maybe, in the winter. That it doesn't help you to get up on time. And 
um, while there are time-finding instruments that work with the stars, if it's cloudy, they're not so useful. Um, and there are fire clocks for burning candles and things like that that can certain measure of wax is consumed and you can measure time with that but it seems somewhere in a monastic setting there is um, a development of a mechanical clock and these become town clocks that um, are put in towers in the I want to say the 13th century, but that sounds a little late. She had that date right. I guess the whole understanding of time and mechanical clocks and just more mechanical things as belonging to sort of a universal scientific culture now is fascinating when you look back at this history and the various religious contexts which kind of facilitated specific kinds of clocks being made for specific purposes. And that's not to say that the instruments can't be universal now, but they, they are attached, attached to specific cultural histories. Right, and urban history, really. Because if you're on a farm in a pastoral setting, you don't need a clock. You don't really need much of a sundial either. You know, the you know when you have to plant and you know weed and harvest your your cow or goat is going to be begging to be milked if it's the right time of day and you, you have all these chores um that are dividing your day quite naturally and you may be more concerned of the passage of days for religious festivals or calendar aspects of time um than, than, than a smaller breakdown of the day. So clock towers were erected in some European cities by the end of the 13th century. Earlier that century, a famous engineer named Badir Zaman al-Jazari, who lived in the city of Diyarbakir in what is now Turkey, was also building mechanical clocks, though by no means the first in the Islamic world. He was writing about them in his book, now known as the Book of Knowledge of Ingenious Mechanical Devices to English Speakers. Among many other machines, he describes building an 11-foot-tall clock in which mechanical birds and humans announce the time with music and movements. That's right, folks, medieval robots. And Al Jazeera's book is full of these automatons, or self-moving objects that are made to seem alive. Another historian, Ellie Truitt, describes the way medieval robots blurred the line between what was seen as natural and artificial, what was seen as dead and alive, much as robots do today. She shows that in the 12th century, people in Europe were amazed and a little scandalized by the complex automata found in foreign courts across the Islamic world and East Asia. They speculated whether they might be demon-powered but two centuries later, by the time clock towers had been erected in a number of European cities, they were much more likely to investigate the mechanical workings behind these automata. In the late Middle Ages, you get these urban settings with the town clock, and so then there are um, 
changes in work habits. So people go to work at a set time. The clock, much later periods, becomes, you know, an industrial timekeeper. But, but very early on, if people are working in, a, um, in an assembly kind of fashion, they would collect for work at that time. Sometimes markets weren't allowed to open until a certain hour, had to close in a certain hour. And so the town clock what would regulate people's lives into like the, the, let's say the 13th century, 14th century, 15th century, mm-hmm. where you really start to see people concerned about time and not wasting it and mm. multitasking and <laughs> to get more done, mm-hmm. you know, before mm-hmm. they run out of time um, and their life is over and... Uh, so there's wonderful references in authors like Petrarch who says, you know, well, I'm going to, my barber will shave me while someone else is reading me a book and I can, you know, I'm, I get both done at the same time. And you know. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. So this whole idea of multitasking is nothing new. This is definitely a big shift from the kind of natural time based on bodies and shadows that Sarah said existed before time-telling devices were installed in cities. It turns out that, like mechanical clocks used in Italian monasteries and Muslim courts, the very division of our day into 24 hours with 60 minutes each emerges from a cross-cultural exchange in a dynamic, pre-modern world. But it does so in perhaps the most boring way possible. Bureaucracy. When I like to talk about the time-finding instruments, I love to go back to ancient Egypt, where we have the around, let's say we're talking about 1500 BCE or earlier, and it's around this time that we find not only the first sundials that survive, but um, we get the division of the day into 24 hours and um, most people don't realize how our way of counting time is totally arbitrary and not totally based on natural occurrences but a bureaucracy Mm. so the egyptians start with they they their civil year is divided into 10-day weeks and um, they have 306, they know there are 365 days in a year. So the year is divided into 36 weeks and then plus five epigominal days, which are days to kind of make up the difference to catch up to the sun. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the idea of the leap year yet. And they... So they want to know, for bureaucracy's purposes, what the, what's the start of every week? So they can tax people or... Right. Okay. Or just keep track of where you are in the calendar. Mm-hmm. So they decide, okay, how are we going to... The start of every week should be indicated by an important star rising just before sun at dawn. When you look at the spacing of the stars rising in this way, you end up with, you know, the 12 
uh, segments of the sky divided by these stars. So those define the 12 hours of the night. So the Egyptians thought, okay, we have 12 hours of the night. Well, we should have 12 hours of the day. Why not? They divided the day similarly into 12 hours and used various kinds of sundials to mark that. Something that might not have sunk in from this explanation is that the length of these 12 hours of day or night depend on how long that given day or night is. So in summer, each hour of the 12 equal hours of the day would be much longer than each of the 12 hours of the day in winter, when the days are shorter. So we ha- that gives us our 24-hour day. Now where does this the division of the hour into 60 come from? Well, this comes from the Babylonians who used a sexagesimal system um, where their mathematics was on base 60. So they, that gave us the 60 minutes and then the 60 seconds per minute and so on. So our whole time-telling scheme of 24 hours to the day um, comes from a bureaucratic division of 10-day weeks and also a then a, the subdivisions from a borrowing of another culture. So where does this history of timekeeping leave us? A mechanical clock was developed to be an alarm clock in the monastery. The 24 hours of the day and night are linked to the night skies of ancient Egypt, and people were cranky over having to wait for the sundial to tell them when to eat in ancient Greece. The history of time-telling is tied up in the religions and cultures of so many places. Remember what Brojit said earlier? Ever since Descartes, a lot of people use the clock as the basic metaphor for a mechanistic understanding of nature. You would say your body works like a clock. The clock and the watch have become the metaphors of choice through which we see the world in a mechanistic way. By the time Descartes was writing in the 17th century, was thinking about the clock as a model for nature or for the body really so novel an idea? The thing to realize with clocks is for a long time they were much less accurate than sundials and that you needed a sundial to set your clock. Wow. So in so despite all these mechanical, the clocks on these towers in the Middle Ages and into the up through the 17th century, generally only had an hour hand. Hmm. And even fancy table clocks that rich people might buy that ran with springs also generally only had an hour hand. And it's only after you get the invention of the pendulum clock, which comes from the work of Christian Huygens in the mid-17th century, does it even make any sense to put a minute hand on a clock? Um, because they're so irregular. And some clocks even had sundials built right on them, like on top. So you'd set it and, but with your sundial to the time of the day. Okay. And second hands only become present on very special clocks around 1690. If you're listening to this on a smartphone, you may not even own a watch anymore. Or you may not have to question whether the clocks around you are accurate outside of accounting for daylight savings time. 
It's hard for us to imagine a world in which clocks were a less reliable or precise method of time-telling than sundials. But I'm wondering, what's driving this transition from using sundial or just looking up or using the call to prayer to using these clocks? That's Chris Grayton, founder of the Ottoman History Podcast. He's speaking to Ovner Wischnitzer about timekeeping and the advent of clocks in the Ottoman Empire. Is, is this like a like an issue of taste? Is it that clocks are a status symbol or is it about, you know, this issue of hegemonic time? Where does this come from? How does it originate? Okay, so some some scholars have argued that in the 18th century, it's a matter of, you know, it's a status symbol. And sure, it's a status symbol, not in, in just in the Ottoman Empire, but throughout right. the world, right? But it's more than that. And what drives this process uh, is needs. These are social needs of specific bodies that we can identify. So, for example, uh, the administrative system is reforming. And we see that by the end of the 18th century, the earliest document I have is from 1786. But from that point on, these type of, this type of documents multiply, like... Uh, it becomes very important. What these documents try to do is to um, to define the the workday in the in the central bureaus in terms of hours, as opposed to from the morning prayer to the ikindi prayer. Okay, because what they get out of it is a more clearly defined right. duration and. Um, they can play with it more easily. And they explain why they do it. In the documents, it's explained because we have, you know, a huge, like a terrible workload. Clerks are living before uh, Ikindi prayer or, you know, clerks are not being, not, they put it, they arrive late and leave early. Okay, so they have to make it clearer. You should be by this and this hour in the office and leave by that hour, not before. And then you could also, later on, or very soon, you begin to see sanctions against late latecomers. Mm. So this is one, you know, one body that presses this this process forward. Later on, we have the military, the reform right. military, the post eighteen twenty six military. That is, uh, it needs in order to restructure itself, in order to use n new tactics, in order to uh, regulate camp routines. It needs more um, meticulous temporal structures. So it's the military. Later on, it's the education system. Very important for the late 19th century. But in promoting and advertising these new ways of... These new regimented uh, way of life. Clock-regulated reg way of life. So by the end of the 19th century, we have tens of thousands of you know, uh, graduates school graduates in different systems like the military and the civilian and they are all they've all been regimented they've all been educated under the clock the ottoman government was trying to regulate its employees and educate people with clocks this was true of governments all over the world in the 19th century as state institutions grew more powerful more people had to pay attention to their method of keeping time and as transportation and communication between places grew more rapid, 
One city had to pay attention to the time in another. Time precision does become um, more important as you get into the 19th century, particularly when we need to coordinate train schedules and other things that are part of the activities of of an urban setting or a colony or, you know, taking um, people and goods from one port to another station. And so knowing um, time becomes important, not just for knowing where you are on the globe, but also in terms of longitude, but, but these schedules. And you then need something of a uniform time line or time zone to carry these goods and solar time or time from nature is very local and so the first time zones are really follow the railroad tracks and um, with time signals sent by telegraph and so that every station on that train line will have the same time it's arbitrary whose time they choose, but they will have that, that railroad time. So not only do people within a city have to agree on what time it is, but people across vast distances. Sarah told us about people in ancient Greece reacting badly to being told what time to wake up and to eat. Chris had a similar question for Owner. Well, we see how the system is you know, more legible, easier to control for a state or some kind of yes. institution like that, but it, it, it kind of clashes with what exists outside of the confines of the state where officials and um, these officers uh, and employees ultimately reside. In other words, what are some of the tensions that arise from this? I mean, do we see uh, sort of compromise or negotiation in this field in creating this uh, new temporal culture during the late 19th century? In the 19th century, as this modern state-building process in- gathers momentum, you- you're very right. The, 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 these state spaces like, like bureaus and schools and military um, compounds have a different routines. They are structured differently. The people raised in them look at what's happening outside as disorder. And they begin, and this is this happens towards you know in the second half of the nineteenth century, especially last three decades. They begin to associate this disorder with the general situation of the Ottoman Empire, and this is, I think, uh, a crucial moment here because if before these were all pragmatic, practical uh, solutions to very immediate problems. What we see by the end of the 19th century is that more and more the graduates of these uh, systems begin to associate uh, these problems with the notion, a new notion of historical time. Okay, so, uh. so that's a whole different level, I'd say. It's worth noting that the very notion of p- progress, right. uh, which becomes so important by the late 19th century, is in itself based on a specific understanding of historical time as linear, as flowing towards the future. And the whole notion of civilization by the end of the 19th century, Medinit, 
is based on that. So civilization lies at the tip of this arrow of time that is pointing towards the future. And civilization is Europe. And we are behind. We, the Ottomans, are lagging behind. And they say it over and over and over again. Now, here is when this new notion of historical time translates into the way we, the Ottomans, uh, organize our quotidian time. If we are behind, if we are lagging behind, we need to save time. Because time is money. And we see that over and over again. It's them doing this connection, not me. They say it explicitly. We are lagging behind and therefore we need to save time. We need to um, be more efficient in the way we use time. And this becomes like a vision, like a new vision for order and progress. Order and progress. Watches and clocks, their increasing reliability and accessibility, these have transformed the relationship we have to our own body's sense of time. And the relationship between standard time and natural time is an active debate that comes up among scientists trying to optimize sleep or parents pushing for a later start to their children's school time. But these methods of timekeeping are also wrapped up in the way people viewed themselves in countries around the world, especially during the age of European colonization. And people often disagreed about the best ways to live with time. Think about everyday experiences for us mm-hmm. that would have been irrelevant for people in the 17th century, like the train being late or you are being late for the train. You miss the train. Okay, These become images through which people conceptualize their you know the the position of the empire vis-a-vis other nations or other empires so the notion of the actual notion of being late becoming so important so this becomes uh, an important way of conceptualizing the condition of the empire and for example when the vapors are running late this is it reflects poorly this reflects it reflects poorly and the you know, officials themselves are saying, look, and they are saying it explicitly. You know, civilization is about order and, you know, our vapus are running late. And what does that say about us? Progress, advancement, and what counts as modern. These concepts were influenced by the way people told time and how they abided by the systems that other people developed. These conflicts that have to do with time are really reflections of social tensions within the body politic. Uh, So all these works together, I think, emphasize how far the actual reality, still in the early 20th century, was far from the ideal of modern time. But nevertheless, I have to note that this was a very, uh, very powerful ideal. Sure. So it kind of structured the way people envisioned the future and calculated their moves you know as 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 to reach that future listeners thank you for sticking with us as we've explored various histories and cultures of timekeeping if you're interested in learning more please check out the bibliography on the website for the science religion and culture program 
where you can also check out other episodes of Ventricles. Our next episode will look at the way the spread of mechanical clocks and pocket watches changed people's understandings of medicine and the body, especially their use of the pulse to read the body. As for the story of haunted grandfather clocks and watches Projit described in the beginning of the episode, it turns out that Sarah had heard of something just like it. We'll end the episode with a song she recommended called My Grandfather's Clock, sung here by Tom Roosh. My grandfather's clock was too large for the shelf, so it stood 90 years on the floor. It was taller by half than the old man himself, though it weighed not a penny weight more. It was bought on the morn of the day that he was born, and was always his treasure and pride. But it stopped short, never to go again when the old man died. Ninety years without slumbering, his life seconds numbering. It stopped short, never to go again when the old